This episode of the Holly Fueled Nutrition Podcast is brought to you by The Feed. To earn up to $80 in store credit per year, visit the link in the show notes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I am your podcast host today, Holly Samuel. I'm also a registered dietitian, certified personal trainer, and have my master's in health education and eating disorders. And today we are going to dive into a very highly requested topic, which is kind of how to approach the menstrual cycle and essentially what things to consider when it comes to if you should train differently depending on what time of the month it is if you should nutrition differently, depending on what type of the month it is. And I couldn't really think of a better person to bring on the show to help me dive into this topic than Dr. Alyssa Olenek. You may know her as Doc Liss Fitness, or she used to be Little Alyssa Fitness on Instagram and YouTube. Um, She has a podcast called The Messy Middle Podcast, and she is a PhD, and she talks all about basically her her journey to fitness and how that also led her into science and her PhD. And she is just such a good resource of information when it comes to talking about this topic. And what I do want to say before we dive into the episode is that the menstrual cycle and the data and the research that we have on this, um, you know, it's not it's not non-existent. Like it does exist. Um, but also it's not super conclusive. So I really appreciate what she brings up regarding this as someone who literally lives in research all day, every day. That's kind of what she does. Um, and we don't really give like hard and fast do this during this phase of the month, do this during this phase of the month, but more go into what we have from an evidence-based perspective on this, because I think it's a lot more nuanced than social media gives it credit for. <laughs> so prefacing this by saying, hey, we are not your doctor. Um, you know, we are not OBGYNs. You know, this is not a replacement for individualized medical advice. Um, it's really probably going to benefit you the most if you're looking for, hey, what should I be doing regarding my menstrual cycle? If you do talk to your doctor, particularly your OBGYN, and maybe even bring in your running coach and or sports dietitian to your team to help kind of um, extrapolate from the research you know, and apply it to you as an individual. Because what I took away most from this conversation is that like everything, it depends. It depends. Um, We do have certain things that we can kind of cover with a blanket statement. But at the end of the day, every person who menstruates has basically a different experience. um, And there is nothing cut and dry. So anything that basically does give really cut and dry recommendations around the menstrual cycle, maybe isn't keeping in mind the big picture that everyone has kind of a different experience. So I really hope that you guys appreciate this conversation with Dr. Alyssa Olenek, and let's welcome her to the show. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hello, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, thanks for spending your your Friday night, end of the week with me. I, I really appreciate it, and I'm excited to dive into some fun topics. Yeah. For those of you who obviously weren't listening to our, our pre-recording, I told Holly, this is like the only time of the week I actually have time to do podcasts anymore. So she lucked out that she records the time, the one time of the week that I'm actually free. So happy to be here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so pumped. And our, our time zones lined up. It's, it's all working out. So I know I'm still getting used to not being on East coast all the time. So it's, it's, 
I'm glad I haven't messed up an interview yet. That's good. That's good. I definitely have. So yeah, <laughs> I, I appreciate it. Um, well, for those of you who are listening, who don't know, um, t- if you could just tell everyone like who you are, um, you know, where you're from and what you do and how you got into fitness, that would be great. Yeah. So I am Dr. Alyssa Lenick. It's weird to introduce myself as that now, but I am uh, Dr. Alyssa Lenick and I just finished up my PhD. Um, so my education is primarily in exercise physiology. Um, but by research trade, I research metabolism and female physiology. And so I've really predominantly been in like the female, uh, physiology research space, menstrual cycle or contraceptives. And now I'm doing my postdoc training in menopause. Um, so I'm trying to span that whole lifespan with my training so I can be a true female expert on on, you know, as much as I can with these things and the things that I care about metabolic health specifically and women and how exercise impacts these things. So my, I've been in school for like 110 years, it feels like, but really I just finished up my PhD this past spring. Um, but aside from being in school for hundred years and researching and doing all the science and things like that, I've always been really into fitness. Uh, it's just always been like a cornerstone of who I am. And so, uh, as the story goes, you know, I grew up and I was like, you know, your normal ish active kid, whatever. Um, and it's funny because I did track in seventh grade and was like, I hate running. So I joined pole vaulting, but the next year lacrosse came to my school and I was in eighth grade and I had such that fixed mindset of like, it's too late in life to start something new at like 13, which is so silly. Where like, (laughs) I was like, you know, the people who played soccer or softball or basketball, like they played the volleyball, whatever they started playing when they were like in elementary school. And I kind of didn't do sports in elementary school. I did cheering and gymnastics and dance and like that kind of stuff, but I'd never gone into like a sports sport. And my brother and sister and dad were such sports people that I just kind of like felt like I missed that. I was just really girly, I guess, um, in the cliche sense, but then lacrosse started and it was a club at first before, you know, it was an actual team in high school, but I felt like I could have something that was mine. Cause then everyone was new at it at that point in time. So it was new to everyone. So I was like, yes, a sport that like, I'm not totally only the new one at, even though joining a sport in eighth grade would not even be that outrageous to begin with, but I digress. And what I did is I found, you know, really early on there that I was pretty fast. I was a pretty good runner. I was really good that at that when it came to lacrosse, like I was good. I was a midfielder. I was usually had more endurance. Than most of the other girls, that was my natural thing. So that summer after I just started running because in my rudimentary 13, 14 year old brain, I thought if I'm a better at, if I'm fitter, I'll be better. I'll be a better athlete. It turns out I just got really good at fitness and not good at sports, but <laughs> like that's how I kind of went the rest of my life. But essentially that summer, I just started running alone on my back roads, like every normal 14 year old girl does. And I got fitter and I watched my body adapt and get better. And I just remember having like my first runner highs. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, man, I want to help everyone experience this. I want everyone to feel this. And this was like very early on in my life. Like I'm 14. I don't realize about the barriers to exercise or sport or fitness or like all the things around it. I just know that like, I feel awesome. This is so amazing. And I like think that if everyone could feel this way, they, 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 their life would be changed. And so like 14, that's my view on exercise and fitness. And so I never really was super into school growing up. Um, I was like an honors regular student, but I never considered myself smart or good at science or any of that stuff. But I really was like, I was like, I wanted to be an athlete. Like I wanted to identify as an athlete so bad. I, I love sports. I played lacrosse and I did cross country for two years, indoor track one year. I did every single pickup league of lacrosse that you could possibly find. Like I would drive an hour to Pittsburgh to play with other teams in the winter because my team didn't have enough girls that cared about playing off season to play. Like I was always, I was like lifting in the weight room um, with the boys 
because none of the girls wanted to wait train running after school. I was known as the girl who would just run in the parking lots after school. And I just started to, through sport to just find fitness. And I, and I loved it. Like I loved training. I loved working out. I loved being active for multiple hours a day. That wasn't abnormal to me because, you know, when you do cross country or indoor track or lacrosse, like you're, you're working out two day, two hours a day, like multiple days a week, like every single day. And so I just really identified as an athlete. And so I went to college and played lacrosse my first two years. And what happened is that I really was, again, really fit, probably the fittest girl on the team, highest GPA, best running times, worst amount of playing times. Like I just wasn't hand eye. I should have played so many other sports. Um, and so what I found though, in those first two years of college, when I was like struggling with sports was that I was really good at school. I didn't know I was good at school. I had no idea I was good at school. And I realized I was good at school and it just opened up this world of possibility for me that I'd never really, again, fixed mindset, I guess, being, a, I remember saying like, oh, I'm not smart enough for science. I'll never pass science to my parents as a teenager. Um, and what it did those few years though, was really drill into my head, how to balance your time in fitness because you're an athlete in school. And I ended up quitting after two years of it, but I kept training, right? So that's that May that I quit lacrosse. I walked into a CrossFit gym and I could only afford like the six week trial thing that you could do before the actual classes. But I think that really kind of saved me because it showed me that like I was still fit and strong and capable outside of sport and that there's this whole new world of do being able to do things that you didn't have to be like a, an actual athlete for. And so I ran my first tough mutter that summer as well. And I remember being so nervous and like running 10 miles for the first time ever. And like thinking it was like the biggest deal in the world. Like I can remember it to this day, cause it was dark and I was still running laps around the parking lot down the road from my house to get the watch to 10. And my mom's calling me and she's like, where are you at? What are you doing? You're going to get murdered. Get home right now. And I remember like coming home and sitting just, just exhausted and so excited that I ran 10 miles, like for the first time ever with like my Nike running app tracking my distance, you know what I mean? Like very, very cliche. And I did my first tough mutter and I just started to continue weight training. And I got like, I just weight trained and ran that whole summer. That's all I did. I remember going back to college, my junior year, and my friends are like, you quit sports and you're jacked. And I was just like, I don't know. I just slowly accidentally found this avenue of fitness and I kept lifting and I kept training because when I played sports, I was like the only one on my team who took weightlifting seriously. Cause I was just, I always knew that like, if you train hard, you can be better at everything that you do. Um, and I really value that. And so I always did the training programs, the whole training packet. Like I did everything that you needed to do. And unfortunately it didn't pan out in sport, but then it did pan out in my career because what I found once I quit lacrosse is that there is athleticism far beyond college sports or high school sports. And if anything, like there's just this whole world a possibility. So I kept weight training, um, through my junior and senior year of college. And I did a strongman competition and a couple powerlifting meets. And I, I never really wanted to compete. I just like enjoyed getting stronger to be strong. And I kept running through this whole time, which is so funny now. Cause like I'm known for my hybrid training thing, but I was just for years. That's all I did. I, I lifted and then I ran or I lifted and taught group fitness. And like, it just always made sense to me because I grew up as an athlete and you always did both. And so then I, when I started my master's, I got really into the strength thing and I went way too hard and drank the, 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 the Kool-Aid of like, you can't lift and run at the same time. And I did do some powerlifting needs and I got really strong. Like I deadlifted 400 pounds strong, like stupid strong, but then I just missed feeling athletic. And that's how, like kind of how I wound back up. And so I just started to experiment during my master's with my, my fitness. Like I did science and I was playing around with like cross methodology and doing some like Metcons, but also like barbell stuff while also running a lot and like doing things like, can I deadlift 300 pounds and then go run five miles as hard as I can. And just like seeing what my body could do. Cause I remember 
this, I took this one trip and it was to Colorado for the first time ever. And I was so out of shape then I was still only weightlifting and I hated it. And so I just took this big rerouting in my fitness to doing both and mixing modalities. Cause I was doing training for another backpacking trip. And I just was sick of feeling that way. And so the final year of my master's, I ran my first trail half. And then I started to get in the idea. I was like, I can run an ultra marathon. Like I just kind of got it in my head that I could run an ultra marathon. And so I just kept training and running and I started my PhD and I was just like, screw it. And I signed up for an ultra marathon, started my business and started my PhD all in the spring of 2018. And like, kind of, if you follow me on social media, the rest is history. I just kept going. I've done a bajillion races at this point in time. I still weight train and I really just built an entire system of business around that because so many people want to be able to do both those things. But all I did was just take the athleticism and the love I had for sport and just turn it into something tangible. Um, and just kind of let that follow me throughout my career. And then I just study a lot of fitness at the same time alongside of it. So my fitness journey is very much not the conventional, like I hated myself and my body and I was restricting food. It was, I was the girl crushing an entire ice cream cake, but then running around her hometown roads by herself and her mom calling her and being like, where are you at? And like, just, just enthralled with the potential of our bodies. And I was just like, so fascinated by it. And I was very heartbroken when I realized that most people don't feel that way. Um, but I let that carry me throughout my entire career. And so here I am now, 15 something years later, spending my life. I, I said that I wanted to learn as much as I can and then help others with that information as much as I can. And like, I'm doing exactly that. And I never foresaw myself doing that as a teenager at all. And I kind of fell into it in college, but I really just loved exercise so much that I wanted to learn as much as I could about it. And then just like challenge myself with all those limits, just to see what we as humans can do. Cause I just think that our potential is really incredible. Um, so that's my spiel, I suppose that overlaps science and fitness, but my story is both at the same time, the love affair of both. Well, and it totally shows. And that's why I think you're just, you're a great person to talk about, you know, kind of the topic of, you know, hormone health and the menstrual cycle and how it can, you know, impact performance and how we feel, because like you said, like you just, you just got into it like so innocently because you loved it and it was fun. And you were like, I don't want nothing to slow me down. I want to figure (laughs) out the best way to do all the things. And I think, you know, some of the conversation right now is like, oh, the menstrual cycle, you know, for half the month, you're a delicate flower. You can only walk. And it's like, well, not true. Um, you know, so I'm excited to kind of dive into that because, you know, you're a really good just example of how, you know, you can be a well-rounded athlete, even if you're Mm -hmm. not doing any specific sport. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I know. And I kind of fell into the menstrual cycle stuff. The the funny part about it is that I fell into it in my PhD because I really thought that there was something there that was more than is actually there. Cause I was just drank the same Kool-Aid everyone else drank. So like, I think people think that like, when I talk about and our quote unquote debunk this stuff that I'm like saying that, like, there's no considerations whatsoever for female trainees or menstruating individuals when it comes to stuff. But like, I really drank the Kool-Aid hard of like, oh my God, my dissertation is going to like, un like uncover all of these differences. And it's, this is important. And then I like got into the literature and started doing my dissertation and collecting data. And I was like, oh, this isn't as straightforward as some of the social media content makes it seem, but unfortunately that stuff is sexy and sells like everything else. Um, but now it's turned, yeah, like you said, into this harmful thing where it's not even like the really cliche stuff of like, you perform better on your period and max out during ovulation. That stuff like, isn't necessarily a hundred percent true, but it's also not harmful versus the stuff now that's like, 
hey, you're going to gain fat, destroy your hormones, elevate your cortisol, become infertile, destroy your body. If you even think about doing anything but gentle walking and yoga for like, it's like 10 days of the month that these people's advice fall on. Or honestly, now I'm starting to see posts that contradict each other. Like do this type of exercise this time of the month and this the other time of the month, but like they'll swap when you do intensity or they'll swap when you do strength and they swap and you should do hypertrophy or whatever. And I'm like, you guys aren't even congruent in the messages that you're giving people, let alone like have any backing to why you're saying this. So like, I get very annoyed with that more so, especially because I assume like your population listening to this, just like mine, none of us are elite athletes here, but we're recreational athletes that do care about our performance and do care about our sport. But at the end of the day, we care about our health. We're not out here willing to sacrifice our health to make an Olympic marathon trial or something like that, which like, I'm not saying elite athletes should sacrifice their health, but I'm just saying that like, at the end of the day, we all have to come back to the fact we're just doing this for fun. So we can live a bit, a little bit longer and have a little bit of enjoyment. So like, what does that mean for us? You know what I mean? Like how should that conversation be being handled, which is probably not exactly always handled the best way. (laughs) Totally. Like I did a lift today and I ran, I'm in my luteal phase. Did it spontaneously combust? It's a miracle. You know, (laughs) it's just, and you're probably still fertile and going to be okay. (laughs) And I, and my muscle mass is fine. (laughs) Yeah. Like my God, like you just, yeah. So anyway, (laughs) yeah, I have all the things to say about this. I just, where would you like me to start on my rant (laughs) on my ranting here? (laughs) Yeah. So I think first, just to give everyone a background, because I think this is still something that I'm glad people are talking about more because a lot of people just don't know, but if you can maybe even just start with the basics of like, what is supposed to happen in like a normal, healthy menstrual cycle, um, you know, like, are there different phases? Like what's happening basically yeah. throughout the course of the month? Yes. So also, I'm sorry, you guys can't see in the video. I fidget so much when I record these podcasts because I too. fit like on my legs because I can't reach the floor. Cause I'm like, anyway, I'm really short. If you guys don't follow <laughs> me, um, I'm like five, one and like not don't fit anywhere. So anyway, so, so a Normal healthy menstrual cycle can be broken into two major halves. So you have the follicular phase, which is the first half, and then the luteal phase. And they are separated or denoted by the separation of ovulation. That's usually the midpoint of that cycle. Um, It's not always exactly the midpoint, depending on your specific cycle length, but it's about the middle of those two phases. And so most people refer to it, you'll hear people say like the menstrual phase, the follicular phase, the ovulation luteal phase. And they kind of like break up the, the follicular phase into these three components, but those are all the follicular phase, but there's early follicular phase is denoted by menstruation and the onset of your period, which marks the beginning of your new cycle. So like day one of your next cycle. Um, so if you're ever tracking like day one would be the start of your period. Um, so that's early follicular phase. And that's like when your hormones are the lowest, um, even though you're menstruating, the reason that that's happening is because your hormone levels drop and you're shedding your uterine lining because your body was preparing for pregnancy, but you don't have pregnancy. So it's getting rid of that. Um, and so you have the lowest hormones in those first, like five, seven days ish. Um, but then after those first few days, it does start to have a gradual rising of estrogen. So estrogen is the dominant hormone in this phase. And that second week ish, uh, give or take, you know, however long your, your follicular phase is probably the more variable phase. That's where people are going to see the most, um, difference in the length of their menstrual cycle, where like the luteal phase is a little bit more consistent in like being about, you know, like two weeks um, from that. So depending on who you are, then you eventually get a rise in estrogen. And what happens is this rise in estrogen starts to go up and then peak around ovulation where you also have um, 
a couple other hormones, luteal, uh, luteinizing hormone and FSH also come into play here during this because you're trying to release an egg for fertilization and that is ovulation. So you have this high estrogen dominant um, second week of your cycle um, going into ovulation and then you ovulate and that's like the, everyone likes to call it the main event because the whole point is to have ovulation so you can get pregnant. Um, and so assuming you ovulate, if your body doesn't have sperm, um, to meet that egg, then it's not going to implant for pregnancy. So your body starts to prepare as if it is though, because it's, that's what your body wants to do, whether you want to have children or not, your body wants you to have babies. Um, and so then you have this decline in hormones coming off of ovulation and then this rise of estrogen and progesterone together. So you would have this, they call it the high hormone phase. Um, but really estrogen is high in that late follicular phase, but this is where progesterone and estrogen are high together at the same time. And generally progesterone is higher than estrogen. So it's a little bit more dominant, so to speak. Um, and I don't say that in the sense of like estrogen dominance. I just mean that like, it's more prevalent, uh, in its levels in your body during that time. And so, uh, you have this like kind of like bell curve hormone rise, progesterone and estrogen, and then this slow fall of it, um, into your next menstrual cycle. And so there's about a week of that rising and then about a week of that declining. So that fourth week is where you're going to still kind of start off with like having elevated hormones, but you'll start to feel that decline going into your menstrual cycle. And that's what we kind of call the late luteal phase, like that last few days, um, probably the PMS window when you find yourself crying in a parking lot and you're not sure why you're crying at the grocery store. And then the next day you get your period and you're like, oh, this makes sense. Why well, I was crying in a Kroger parking lot, like over something stupid. Yeah. Like that's the time, like those few days where you're just like, what is happening? Um, not to stereotype us all, but I I've been there, right. Sam, I'm like, what is Sam. happening? <laughs> Why am I so upset about this right now? But that we all can joke all day about our symptoms within that, but then you start back at your next cycle. So that's kind of how it goes. The average cycle is about 28 days, but it can range anywhere in normalcy from like, I think it's like 24 to 35. Don't fat check me there. It's somewhere in that range. It might be 22. I, it's about, three and a half to little under five weeks, just depending on your personal cycle. And then if you start to fall outside of that window, um, that's when you usually people who are like either like having issues with menstrual cycle length, they're being amenorrheic or loss of cycle, um, might see longer or shorter periods within that, or, you know, sometimes individuals like PCOS and stuff like that will have irregularities within that. And so my disclaimer for all of that is that if you feel like you have something that's causing a regular menstrual cycle, go to an OB or an endo or like someone who's qualifying those things. If you have a doctor that's not listening to you, like always advocate for your own health. I think that's why people get so turned away from this stuff. And I'm like, well, no, there's good doctors out there that will help you, but don't get your information from just random people on social media. Um, because if that's happening to you, you deserve like personalized care, so to speak. Um, and so I won't cover those different things necessarily in this podcast. Yeah. Thank you for going to going through the cycle. And I think, um, part of like what you had started to touch upon, like, um, how we might feel, um, you know, typically in the late luteal phase, like kind of going into what the hormones are doing throughout the month, like how, I guess, do they impact, like how we might be feeling, do they impact our abilities to like perform? And like I said, um, before, like our audience is mostly like endurance athletes who probably mm -hmm. also strength train. Um, like what are the nuances there? How, like, you know, it's very easy to be like, yeah, right before my period, I feel like I'm going to cry in a Kroger parking lot over like a puppy, you know, that I saw yes. a picture of or something. Yes. Um, but like, what about the other parts of the cycle? How, like, how, um, I guess, do they affect us? 
Yeah. So the answer that nobody likes to hear is right now, we have no conclusive data saying that the cycle impacts us at any point in time, really. Um, there's two big papers that I always like to kind of rely on. And one's Magnolia et al. from uh, 2020. And they did like a systematic review and meta-analysis for those listening. That's just like a way to saying you studied like the results of a bunch of papers to see what the overall effect was. And if there's a strong effect, that means there's probably something there from all of the data versus a small effect means there's probably not something there. And so what they essentially found was that one, it's really hard to address what's going on in the menstrual cycle because the quality of a lot of research on women is poor because you have to control for so many variables when doing this research that it's hard to confirm where cycle is. Um, so like, of course, like we have to keep in with the grain of salt that some of this stuff is variable across the literature. Um, but when you look at it, it's really variable across the literature. There's like, I think it's like 50% of studies shown effect and 50% show no effect. So like if it, I think it's important to keep in mind for people that like, if there was such a robust effect of the cycle, it would be prevalent more than it's already being seen in literature. Like, yes, we need more studies and yes, we need more high quality studies. I think people think that I'm like anti-science on this. I'm like, I did an entire dissertation on this. Like I care. Um, but if like, there's other things that influence performance and like more than just your hormones, like they do probably have a slight impact on what you're doing. Um, but keeping in mind that like, it's like 50, 50 in the studies right now, and then there's another one that like studied the, I'll go back to the results of that paper in a second, but I have to tangent that basically surveyed in, like women in sport. And it's like 54% res, res, uh, respond saying that they do feel like their cycle impacts their performance and like 46 say they don't think it impacts them at all. So again, when we say these things, when I say, I feel like a lot of this stuff is like women and menstruating individuals want something in the fitness industry to be about them. And then when you say it's individual, like they're mad that you're not giving them blanket statements. So like, don't kill the messenger. I'm like truly saying that you're so unique and special that like, we really should just consider you. Um, and I know people just want these blanket 28 day cycle protocol things. And it's just not, unfortunately not that straightforward right now. We don't have the data to suggest this. So anyway, back to the studies, McNulty et al found that if there is any difference in performance across the cycle, there's a slight decrease in performance in the early menstrual phase. So early like follicular phase, like the onset of the menstrual cycle, um, compared to all other phases, there's maybe a potential slight decrease in performance, which conflicts with our classic statement of like, women make their best PRs and marathons during their menstrual cycle, which is true. Some people do, but people PR across the entire month. Um, but then there's another one, Carmichael at all. I think 2021 was a different type of review. And they looked at like the individual effects across the cycle and like all that's like this very messy map of things. And what they found is that depending on what you're looking at, it looks very different across the month, depending on the variable. I wish I remembered off the top of my head, the exact ones, but this there's like so many different mediators here. Um, but what they found like was that that late luteal phase is when we see more decreases in performance in some of these different variables. So kind of, but they didn't find what Magnolia at all found, but that kind of suggests that yes, there's probably something at this point in time. Like I feel comfortable saying that like you might feel worse in that late luteal phase or that early menstrual phase. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that your performance is guaranteed to be bad. And it doesn't guarantee that you will feel bad, but if there is something going on, it's probably in that, like, honestly, like four day window, if you really want to do it, like when people are like exacerbated to like 10 days, I'm like, it's probably maybe like those few days, the day or two right before your period and the day 
of your period that you might be feeling these things. And a, a big thing that comes along with this is that even if it performance isn't decreased, it appears that a lot of these issues do come down to perceived um, issues with this one in the late luteal phase that fall of your hormones um, can alter some of like the serotonin in your brain and it can affect like how you feel. So, your perception of like how you feel towards fitness and training. So even if you physiologically might be okay during that time, depending on your individual response, you might just feel shitty. And like, that's completely valid. And same thing, like, even if your performance technically isn't quote unquote altered, or you might have more potential in your early menstrual phase, if you are having high PMS or menstrual cycle symptoms, then yeah, you're probably not going to feel great while you're doing the things that you do right now. Generally exercise can alleviate some of that stuff. So it's not wrong, but I think we have to remember like the physiological versus the social perceptual things. And a lot of this stuff is like, even if we sit, like, I'm not going to gaslight people and tell them their physiology isn't causing them to do anything and how they feel is fake. No, it's, that's why it comes down to individual, like your perceived issues. And so, um, but with that though, there's differences. Like some individuals report that they feel worse during ovulation. And some people report that they actually train really well during their luteal phase when quote unquote, they should be training worse. You know what I mean? And so like, it, you really have to think about who you're training and who you're coaching and how they respond. And so when we say that it should be like an individual approach, we can make it data-driven, right? And so all that to say, if there's any serious negative implications on performance right now, it's maybe in that small few-day window um, around like the end of the late luteal phase, beginning early follicular phase. And again, that data is still messy, but that's like kind of the best that we have right now. Um, but I don't say that with like suggesting that like, if you have a race during that time that like you necessarily will have a bad day, right? Like I can't say that you will have a great day, but I can't say you'll have a bad day either. Like, it's not like I'm going to be like, oh, that's the worst. That is the worst thing that you could ever do to yourself. Like you can perform like right now, we don't really have strong data to suggest that you're going to perform like egregiously terrible more than one time versus the other. Um, and nutritional strategies can help mediate a lot of those things too. So anyway, um, the things that people want me to say in this segment is saying that you're going to perform really well when your hormones are low. And I'm not going to say it's because you're more like a man, because I refuse to say that we do better because we're more like men, because our hormones actually are like really powerful and estrogen plays a really important role in our body with adaptations when it comes to like fat oxidation and mm -hmm. our oxidative pathways that support endurance, like training, but also like muscle development and stuff like that. So like, I will not say you are more like a man so that you're performing better. I'm just going to say that because you don't have the influence of hormones strongly, you might have some quote unquote ability to perform better. But honestly, the results of Minolti at all is that they think that the reason that women's performance is lower in the first part of the menstrual cycle is because their hormones are lower. So I keep that in mind because I know that's like age old trope in like the endurance circles is like, that's why you do better and should race during your period because your hormones are lower. Um, you can perform really well in your period, but like, that's like my thing of like saying that, like, it's not because you're like a man, but also like your hormones aren't a bad thing and they do help your performance. So after those first few days and your estrogen starts to rise and generally into that second week, um, estrogen does appear to potentially have like properties that support like muscle growth. Estrogen is a really great estrogen. We love estrogen. We want estrogen. Like we, our hormones are not our enemies. They're not bad. Um, and so there is like, really messy, mixed, not conclusive data that suggests that maybe it would be better to train like strength training more in the follicular phase versus the luteal phase. But like, we don't have any data to suggest it's better than control training across the month at this point in time. So from strength parameters wise, like 
we don't have enough data to really suggest that it's like a hundred percent foolproof better, but like there might be something there, but you know, for most of you, you're probably just strength training to support your running. So at that point in time, I wouldn't even worry about like your periodizing your strength across the month, other than following a progressive normal plan and adjusting it to yourself using RPE, because most likely your nutrition and your training variables and the stress of that is going to be more of an impact on hypertrophy or strength anyway. Um, so that's usually when people say like that second half of your follicular phase, go ahead and do your hit and your high like PR and go all out. And you can generally strength train across the entire month. When it comes to endurance training, unfortunately, we don't have as much, we don't have really any training data to like any like periodized programs that looked at like training different ways of endurance across the month, at least to my knowledge at this point in time, I haven't seen anything. It's really just like, there's like five strength studies. Um, but overall endurance performance, when you think about the follicular phase and versus the luteal phase, when you have that high hormones, it's kind of, again, mixed within the field. So it doesn't appear to be drastically better or worse follicular versus luteal phase. Um, and when we do see decreases in like time trial performance or exercise substrate oxidation differences, or maybe like your capacity or whatever it is that you're looking at, that stuff can be mediated or like eliminated with like carbohydrate feeding. So like generally, like I'm very pro, like, I think people think again, like I'm anti all this stuff. I'm very pro nutritional and lifestyle modifications to manage symptoms, to keep us training the best that we can, because we don't want to just spend two weeks a month giving up performance. Right. So how do we keep making adaptations? So I think that the question should more so be how, is there a way that we can adapt better versus like, when are we weaker? And so I know that doesn't like give us an exact answer of like when we perform better or worse, but it's like, this is like the rough idea of what we think might be going on, but the luteal phase isn't necessarily, especially for endurance. It's necessarily not a bad thing. You are are a little bit more fat oxidative and you might be like more po protein breakdowny. That's not a scientifically like a fancy word breakdowny um, during that time. But really, like I was mentioning before, like carbohydrate feeding, adequate like intra or pre workout carbohydrates, um, as well as like an adequate amount of like protein intake um, can help kind of reduce some of that stuff. The one thing that is kind of apparent potentially during the luteal phase is that uh, you might have poor recovery during that time. So it's important to make sure you're sleeping enough, you know, increase your caloric and take a little bit more like from protein and carbs, probably primarily. Um, and my only general suggestion is that if you are someone who has a harder time recovering during that time, um, like you could just space out your workouts a little bit more or use RPE, right? Manage your intensity and volume if you're someone who has higher symptoms of that. But uh, like we see sometimes more like creatine kinase damage during that point in time and a harder time to recovery. But then we also see some stuff where it's like worse in the follicular phase. So I feel like it's like, well, mm, okay, like this is the narrative, but the data is just, it's really messy at this point in time. But the biggest thing that it comes down to that, like most people are having a consensus on is what is your individual experience? How is this impacting you? And like, can we use symptom management? And how are we talking about this? Because a lot of these narratives are harmful in themselves and how they're being portrayed. So um, to summarize that, I don't want to say that your period doesn't affect your performance at all but it's probably going to be very unique to you. So for every person out there listening, saying, well, the conventional stuff I hear on Instagram really fits with me really well. There's probably another menstrual cycle experiencing individual or woman saying, you know what? That's not at all what I experienced. Like I feel awesome during that time. And so I think that's where it gets echoed is that like a good handful of people, like, I mean, there's how many 
like 50% of the population is going to be like, oh, like that they're going to hear this information. Like there's going to be a good percent of them that are going to be like, oh, that is my experience where others, it isn't because every cycle is different cycle to cycle and every person's cycle is different. Right. And so it's interesting to me that most of these people are like preaching like hormone imbalances, but then they're trying to give blanket statements of hormonal profile exercise training to people. And I'm like, well, if everyone's hormones are different and unique and broken, then wouldn't it make sense that this wouldn't work for all of them? It's just very kind of, it doesn't make sense. So, um, that's my spiel of like, everything matters and there's nothing at all. So like, yeah, well, and even what you said, like 50% of women are probably going to agree with like the takeaways that might come on social media. And then 50% are going to be like, that's not how I feel at all. And that's like, literally what that's like the data that we have. That's what that, that's what it says. <laughs> like literally that. what it says. It's yeah. like 52 <laughs> and 46% or whatever. That's not a hundred percent, but like, that's almost yeah. exactly the split. And so, <laughs> yeah, it adds up. Right. And so that's why like, it's unique. Right. And I think that like the biggest thing to take away is there's, there's a news article going around, but from some track athlete talking about how she had calf cramps and how she wishes there was more research on this stuff. And, um, there's a researcher out of the, uh, UK who I really respect. And she was tweeting about this and she was like, I'm really glad people are talking about this, but this is something that I love to say, but I love when like senior researchers in the field say what I want to say. Cause then I'm like, okay, like my, like not like my bias is correct, but like me as a young investigator, I'm on like the same kind of track thought with what I've gathered from the data. And Validation. It was like, <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm like, okay, like I'm not an idiot here. Like I'm, I know I learned a thing or two. Um, because people don't realize is that you finish your PhD, but you're still like a baby in the field. Like you, I need like 20 more years to have credibility. But anyway, <laughs> but they were tweeting about how like, one, like we have to stop acting like there's no data on this. Like I get really annoyed and upset because people are like, there's no data on this. But then what they do is they just like make up hypotheses and they're just using like, like basically like theory to like coach people. And there's a difference between like filling in the gaps from as a pr- practitioner to figure out what's going on in an individual basis saying like, Hey, like, you know, I don't really know if there's, this isn't really database, but I, it, it has potential that suggests in my work. Like there's a difference between that versus just like making up stuff or making up exercise prescription based on other data we have about how the menstrual cycle works. And like, we have to remember that there is data, like, even though like we don't quote unquote have as many studies. And like, I was second author on the paper that showed the like 6% of papers are actually only on women specific stuff. Like people are always like, there's no data on us. I'm like, I literally published the paper that says that, like, I know, I know there is, but I also know that there are some high quality studies and there is some good data and there is some like good consensus out there of like what we should be doing. It just, unfortunately, isn't like, we know a lot. And I think this is where people forget, like, like this is the point that I'm getting at. The menstrual cycle isn't the only thing that impacts female performance. Like we have to move past this idea that like your menstrual cycle is the only thing like Serena Williams just, uh, she just retired. And one of the reasons she said she she retired, she was like, I I wish my husband could like have a second kid, but he can't. And I need to have a kid before it's like, I, I can't have kids anymore. And like, we have to remember how many barriers are in either like female sport or even like transport or whatever we were talking about individuals who were like experiencing these things and these symptoms. And like that there's all these other things that impact this. And so all that to say, um, there's this big push in the field though, right now, basically suggesting that like, it's very individual, um, but how can we manage and migrate these things and talk about them more? Um, and I don't feel like it's like, I think, every, I don't know, maybe I'm too saturated in my own field that everyone's like, it's still taboo. And I was like, I think it's the same thing as social media where people are like, 
oh my gosh, I feel validated because you're talking about this. And I feel this too, but I don't know anyone else who does. And I'm just like, have you talked to anyone in your actual life, your friends, your family, your coach, your peers, like about these things? Like you can't just wait for everyone else to talk about these things. Like you have to be willing to also talk about things. So it's, I think it's a lot of times people who are afraid to talk about things and they're waiting for someone else to, and like, no one talks about this. And I was like, but you were also contributing to the same issue that you're having here. So like, let's talk about it. So I do think it's getting gradually less taboo and more people are talking about it. And I've seen that a lot more over the years. Um, but we're forgetting like all of the things that do affect performance. So I don't know if this is your question, but I'm going to spiel myself anyway. Well, I want to, I want to point something out too, first, like the, I, one of the papers, I think it's the one I can never say the name. It's like, well, we'll go, we'll go most, we'll go most at all. I can't oh, remember. Um, I, I'm friends with her. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. It was I a paper. Her. And she, there was a, there was like a pyramid in the, and I think it's in that paper. I don't think it's in, it's in a different one. It's not in that one. I know what you're talking about. It's a different one, but I know I was, that was kind of the spiel that I was about to go into. So yes. So like, there's so, that's what I think is so interesting. Like, you know, you, you can maybe track your cycle and see like how you feel during certain times of that cycle for you specifically. But I think what's important is that that's like kind of at the top of the pyramid, (laughs) like the bottom of the pyramid is about eating enough. And then it's about, you know, the composition of what you're eating. And then it's about meeting your micronutrient needs. And then it's about timing. And then maybe it's about hormones using the data that we do have, like you said. Mm-hmm. And then it's about, you know, the the sexy stuff that everyone likes, like supplements and stuff. So like, let's talk about, you know, what does have a meaningful impact on your performance. And if there is anything we can extrapolate, you know, to the menstrual cycle that may help like with symptom management. Yeah. So I know exactly what paper you're talking about. And I don't remember the first author's name, but I love when it came either. out because it was about nutrition and I yeah. loved it because if you look at, look at my social media from about a year ago, I have a post called my like female physiology, like pyramid of hierarchy. And yeah. then that paper came out Same. and it was like literally the thing that I had made in my post. Like it was a little different, but it was like almost identical to like what I suggested in yes. my post. And I was like, now I can just <laughs> cite my idea from someone else, but it was talking about like, I think people think that we're like, oh, hormones don't matter at all. I'm like, no, but hormones are not these super strong things that are regulating our entire life to the point that it's like a wind gust is going to blow you over. Like you have other factors in your life that also impact health and performance. Like your cycle is a piece of that. Absolutely. But you like the biggest things when it comes to like training specifically and performance is like one, we're talking to a population of people that are historically underfed not eating appropriate nutrient distribution in their diet, and they're following horrible training protocols. What do you think that leads to? That leads to hormonal dysfunction. That leads to loss of cycle. And guess what? Having a loss of cycle or having hypothalamic amenorrhea or being underfed is more stressful to your body. Your training is physiologically more stressful to your body. And that's a consensus in the literature that if you are underfed or overtrained concurrently with being underfed, your exercise and training is more stressful. You're having more of that stress response that we're so worried about having. It's not good for you. So the bare bones of it all, and this is the thing people don't like, cause it's the sexy, boring stuff that no one wants to actually address that has always impacted performance. And so we are not quote unquote small men, but we are human, right? And humans need food. Like we need fat. And so, and macronutrients and food and calorie intake is so important in menstruating individuals because we are just simply more sensitive to energy deficits. Our bodies do not like energy deficits because your body wants energy because it wants to make a baby. And that's why it shuts down your cycle if you undereat. And so at the base of this pyramid, like if you are not eating adequate intake and you're not eating adequate, like 
macronutrients within that, um, and hydrating, managing your stress, sleeping, all of these things that are like big rocks that will have noticeable impacts on your performance. If you under eat and you under sleep and you're overly stressed, your training is going to be trash. It does not matter where you're at in your cycle. You're not going to get the most out of your training period pun intended. And then when we go to that, we have to think about like our, our dietary composition. So yes, macros are great, but we want to be eating healthy dietary composition. We want to be eating enough, like micronutrients, vitamins, especially again, things that really drastically impact female menstruating trainees or micronutrient intake, calcium, bone, things that support our bones, calcium, iron, vitamin D, like all these things that could potentially affect your, now this is not me saying go roguely supplement with these things, test, not gas, but Come like <laughs> things that like actually impact, especially runners who have so many bone stress fractures and they have calcium deficiencies or iron deficiencies, or they are having like really low energy intakes because they're trying to maintain unrealistic body composition standards. These are the things that are impacting performance drastically, like very, very much so. Um, and so that's where we need to start. And that's hard for people to move past that because like, that's one of the hardest things for female and menstruating Chinese to work through is that because there's the whole, especially endurance sports are notorious on like people worrying about, you know, being heavier as a runner, but sometimes that weight will make you better because it makes you healthier and a healthier runner is a better runner. Like, yes. Period. Yeah. And at the end of the day, we have to remember that we are focusing on health. Like, and I'm not talking about like, okay, I'm a month out from an ultra marathon. So I'm probably overtraining a tad because I'm trying to elicit that stimulus before I get to the race, kind of push yourself. That's fine. Like if you're training for marathon or big race, you're going to get to a point in training where like, okay, this is just really hard because it is supposed to be hard, but then you're going to recover and taper and feed yourself and go into your race. We're not talking about that. We're talking about like that day in day out, like overstressing your body while underfeeding it. Cause energy availability is huge. That is huge. That's probably what I would think that is the biggest threat to female performance is like low energy availability and the negative metabolic downstream incomes. And we want to remember our metabolism and our health and our long-term longevity is most important, right? Like we're not I'm not running the CrossFit games. I'm not winning Leadville. Like I'm not, I may be winning powerlifting meets, but I don't care enough. But like that, like we point blank, like you have to think about your health and long-term goals. Right. And so when we build off that though, then you go into like training protocols. Cause how many people historically, because the messages to female, like in menstruating individuals who do sport and fitness is just really terrible exercise advice. It's just really unperiodized random, like haphazard exercise training. And so you're not going to get results or get faster or run farther or get stronger without following something that's at least moderately structured. Like you don't have to be super, super drilled in. Like that's okay. Um, if you're not elite, but you have to have something and you're never going to know the impact that your hormones has on your training. If you're not managing your training, like you, you won't know, like, okay, I'm someone who needs drastically more carbs this time of the month. But if you're not like kind of in tune with what you're normally eating, you won't really know that you won't know how your body's responding. And that's the, the, the same intuition that you should have. Like I increased my training volume recently and I know I need more carbs because I can feel that. But I know from years of training, what it feels like when I'm not eating enough carbs to support my performance. Like I don't need a macro calculator to tell me, okay, you're eating enough carbs. Like I know 
like, okay, I need to be eating more in that long run, or I need more probably electrolytes. And like, it, it comes with training and coaching and knowledge and expertise and stuff like that. But like, I know that, but if you are managing your food intake, and I'm not saying everyone has to track their food every day of the month, but you, if you're, you're a normal person following a regular eating pattern and a regular training pr- plan, and you're mostly controlling your variables like sleep and stress and your day-to-day life is pretty normal. Then when you get to that peak of the pyramid, you'll start to be able to be like, oh, this is off my normal routine and pattern. Or every month for the last three to six months, I usually recommend people track for three to six months before they make like a conclusion or a judgment about their cycle. Um, because then you get to know your normal patterns and behaviors and knowing, okay, well, like this is okay. I know this, this is what happens to me. Then you can either like adjust from there or simply like figure out how you're going to manage that symptom. So I think for a lot of people, they forget too, that like being a healthy individual who eats like a normal dietary pattern and exercises will help manage like your quote unquote hormones and balance them and things like that. And so I think that maybe for some people like that are less active, it's might be more dramatic for them to have that stuff, so to speak, um, because they're not used to it. And then it becomes a barrier for exercise. So like, that's the only time I reverse the pyramid where I'm like, if your menstrual cycle is becoming a barrier of you going into exercise, well, let's see how we can help you overcome that barrier till it becomes a point where it's like not the biggest factor, um, in your day-to-day life. And you can train consistently across the month, but learn how to feed yourself. And then my biggest thing when it comes to cycle-based training is I really love the use of auto-regulation and people who have these things, because that accounts for everything, right? If you feel shittier during any point in time, if your RPE for a lift or a run or whatever it is, is seven, if you don't have judgment about what that seven looks like, you might drop weight, which will drop volume, or you might slow your pace, which will drop intensity to match the, the prescribed intensity. Or if you know that you're someone who has poor recovery, you might know, okay, I'm going to like eat a little bit more here or sleep these extra days, or maybe I'm going to adjust my volume or intensity on these weeks or spread these things out a little bit more because I know that's how I respond. It works for me, but like, you're kind of just like testing, not guessing with supplements. Like I just said, you have to figure out how your body is responding, but these blanket protocols just ignore all of that. And they say, you were all the same. And it's the same as saying you should train exactly like a man. Like it's the same thing we're all fighting against. Like everyone's like, this should, this is bullshit. And I'm like, okay, but you're doing the same thing. You're just putting people, you're just taking them out of one box and putting them into another box. Like, like our hormones do make us different. Right. But like one, we are still human beings who training protocols and basic physiological adaptation still works for us. Like, it's not like we are a different species, like point blank. Like we don't need to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We don't need to throw out everything with exercise physiology, but we should be using these as tools to inform our training or our coaching, not the premise of everything that we do. Like people still need the basic things that we know about strength and endurance training to get them to move forward. Right. Like we still need that information. Um, so yeah, my biggest thing is people hate it all the time. And I feel like all my resources just telling, you know, women or individuals with a menstrual cycle to eat more, but most of you probably need to eat more, (laughs) like like at least more protein. Or I think that highly active individuals very severely underestimate how much carbohydrate they need because you don't necessarily like, obviously it's like calories in calories out. And it's not like the diet industry advice where it's like, well, it doesn't matter if it's fats versus carbs because you're in a caloric balance. No, it matters for you. You want, you want as many as those calories coming from carbs as you can have without taking away from the fact that your body still needs adequate fat for you. But like, I think people forget that. And that's going to refill your glycogen stores. It's not all going back into your fat cells. Like your body's using it to recover and like create new tissue. And, um, 
I think that the amount of carbohydrate, like moderately to high active, like endurance, especially, which is very energy costly. I think that's why we see this stuff in endurance athletes more so than maybe strength athletes, because mm-hmm. that endurance component is just so metabolically costly and that people are afraid to eat back to support that. And so that's why I'm like, start at the bottom, because I think a lot of people, like you might have a good training program, but you might be feeling tr- trashy. Well, okay. We'll work back. Is your is your foundation solid for many of you? Maybe. Yeah. You've gone through the ringer and you kind of know now you're like, I learned that lesson the hard way. Um, but for many of you, you might not still know how to fuel yourself. Like the athlete that you're trying to be. Hey everybody. I wanted to take a minute to hear a word from our sponsor for this episode of the show, which is the feed. If you have heard me talk about the feed before you probably hear the excitement and passion in my voice. And that is because The feed is just such a great resource. So what is the feed? Basically, it's a website that you can go to and you can order most sports nutrition products off of. And this basically means that you can customize a box for yourself. You can do a subscription if you want to, or you can just do one-time orders. You can buy single servings of products so that if you want to like try a new protein powder or try a new gel, you're not having to commit to buying like a case (laughs) of a flavor that you could potentially hate. And that's one of the reasons why I love the feed, especially as a sports dietitian, because I know that while, you know, hey, our sports nutrition principles... They apply to pretty much everyone, but what products you actually use in that template, that's really going to depend on you, your individual preferences, your gut, and what works for you. So I love that the feed has so many different brands available on their website so that you can try a lot of different things and see what works for you. And I was so excited to partner with them for podcast sponsorship because It's just such a great resource. I first came across the feed when I was training for the Boston Marathon back in 2021 when I started my training. And it was great because I could try all the different sports nutrition products that I tell my clients about so that I could really be like, you know, well-versed in what things actually taste like and how they go down. Um, Even though I, you know, have my favorite products that I like, it just allowed me to buy single servings and try different stuff. So I really hope you go check out the feed. If you want to earn $80 in store credit this year, you can visit the link in the show notes and sign up to create an account and get started on your first order. Now let's get back to today's episode. Yeah. And like, I think too, kind of like you said, I mean, for, for people who menstruate for women, especially like the data that we do have on this does say that they tend to underfuel. <laughs> um, All of it. Yeah. And it's like, that could actually be maybe what's affecting our performance and making our cycles worse too, if we're under fueling. Especially and then like if there are true metabolic fluctuations across the month, you're going to feel that more dramatically if you're underfed. If you need more carbs, but you're consistently restricting, guess what? That difference is going to feel way more meaningful to you than someone who's fed. Like when you feed people in studies, most of the differences go away. Why? Because food is a very powerful influence on metabolism and our performance, so to speak. It Um, works for both men and women. (laughs) Yeah. Like I just, I, I, I always feel like I'm like the nutrition channel and people are like, but what about my performance? And I'm like, if you eat enough and you can manage your own symptomality and use RPE and you can probably pretty much consistently train across a month. The only thing that I'm starting to like I'm giving away all my secrets for free here. I'm hoping to give some like little webinars on this topic. And I've been really thinking about like objective guidance to give here for people. 
And the only thing that I can really think about that is driven by the science other than like adjusting for your own self um, is that like, maybe if you are someone who has like very serious symptoms for two, those, that, that luteal phase, like you really are really impacted by that one, maybe see if you have things in your diet and nutrition and health that are causing more symptoms there, um, and feeling larger dramatic changes. Um, but maybe for you, you do front load more of your month because then you're going to be backloading because you have severe symptomality. Like, I don't think that that's like a bad thing to do, but I think saying everyone should do that is uninformed. Like, I think that like, if that's what works for you or whatever it is, like, then that's like, I'm, I'm fine with that. Cause people do shit that works for them all the time. They're training that does like, it doesn't make sense. And you're like, okay, well, whatever. Um, but the only other thing that I think could be like, a, like, I think people think that they need to take off that whole late luteal early menstrual cycle phase. And I'm like, why can't you just backload and front load your weeks? Like, why can't you just say, Hey, I've been tracking. I know where I'm at in my cycle. I'm tracking. I know that Thursday, Friday, Saturday of this week, I'm definitely going to be in my late luteal into my menstrual cycle. And my performance always sucks during those days. So I'm going to bump my rest day to later in the week and do my training earlier in the week. Like that, like, I feel like that's like such an intuitive idea for me to say, Hey, well, what if instead of like, maybe you take your two days off, like your fourth week's day off and your first week of the month's day off, like back to back those two days, because you know, you personally really just hate training during that time. And I'm not saying this, like everyone has to exercise every day of the month, but most people listening to this, I'm assuming care about their performance. They're not trying to skip training, but they're trying to make the most of it. Like I always like if, but like you have the power in you to skip a session any day, any time ever. Like if you feel like shit, like it's not like you just need to like have your cycle as an excuse. Like no one's saying that like, you have to train, but if you're trying to get through this, like I think it would make more sense to just like front load that week when your hormones are still kind of high in your luteal phase. Cause I think people get really anti luteal phase and progesterone's high, but there's potentially some benefits to that, even or it's like it helps with performance or it's not actually as detrimental as we think. Um, right. And then like, when you know that you're going to start to feel terrible, just like, okay, well, you know that you're going to front load this week. Like that's such a simple solution. Um, instead of saying, well, I'm going to take this whole week off or I'm going to deload every fourth week. Right. Um, when or I'm going to question why I'm fearing, feeling terrible. Like if you know yeah. why you're going to feel terrible, that's empowering. Then you can do something about it. <laughs> and there's also like, if you're, if you feel terrible, but your performance isn't really changing, but you just feel terrible. You can just be like, I don't. I, I just don't, this isn't going to be a good workout, but like, right. that doesn't mean that it's not a productive workout, assuming that you're able to sleep, eat and recover from it. Right. And that's why I'm giving these suggestions for people. And there's like, even some advice out there suggesting like nutritional strategies during that time, like fish oil and maybe some like anti-inflammatory antioxidant type supplements. Um, there's like very early loose data. I think it's on curcumin. Maybe I could be wrong, but like things like that. And like, some of the generic advice is to tell people to start taking like baby aspirin for a whole week, but we don't necessarily want to be taking like aspirin every day for a week, every month kind of thing. So like, how can we in like a normal regular cycle, like do things, but my biggest thing with like the nutrition advice and the metabolism or the supplement stuff is like, hopefully you're just doing these things across the whole month. So then you don't have to worry about changing it. So to speak, right? Like we want to be eating adequate carbohydrates. Like there is some data to suggest that um, you might want to up your carbohydrates in the, in the, um, follicular phase, especially if you're carb loading for a race, you're probably gonna need more carbs to do that than a man. Um, and then you oxidize more fat. So you can probably eat more of your dietary intake during the luteal phase from fat. But I say that like, it's weird. Cause like carbs are still like my big, like 
like thing here is like, you want more carbs overall in that first half of the month, but in the second half of the month, you don't want to ignore carbs or fat. You just want to push them more towards pre-workout or intra-workout where like that, because we're technically like quote unquote, like less insulin sensitive and you are more fat oxidative, which is a good thing. But if it's going to blunt your power output or your like glycolytic capacity or anaerobic capacity, especially like in speed work or like hard efforts, um, that's where like carbs could be really helpful on like reducing that stress of that workout, but also like kind of preserving your performance with that as well. So keeping in mind that like carbs are important in both phases, but for like different reasons at different points in time. Um, but if you're in the same thing with protein, like technically you probably need a little bit more protein in the luteal phase, but if you're eating high protein intake across the month, then you probably don't need to adjust half the month kind of, so to speak, but maybe like you prioritize drinking a shake right after your workouts on your luteal phase days, just to help with that recovery. You know what I mean? Like maybe you sleep 30 to 60 more minutes, those few weeks of the month, like those things will probably have bigger impacts on these things first before you go and be like, okay, well, I'm just going to skip training for 10 days a month. (laughs) Well, and to your point too, like that's those suggestions are awesome. And that is like some of the data that we can extrapolate those recommendations from, but also if you're not eating enough carbs or protein to begin with, you just need to start there. (laughs) Like you need to start with like eating enough carbs and protein all month long. And I think a lot of people forget too. like, that's, it's a good point too, is like, I think when people say, I'm like, you don't need to change things drastically that I'm somehow saying we should train like biological men. And I'm like, that's not what I'm saying. (laughs) But like one, so many things affect our performance that affect women administrators very uniquely that don't affect like men or whatever. But two, for many people, this is just one more thing that they have to worry about. And they can barely figure out how to feed themselves enough, let alone like changing their math. Now, if you're super nerdy and you're really into this and you want it, I don't care. Like, I don't actually care. Like, I'm not mad that you're doing this. Like people will be like, well, this worked for me. And I'm like, oh, I'm not like, okay, like, cool. Like, that's awesome. Like, I'm not like, I'm not mad at you because you did something that like, doesn't agree with the science. Like it's not harmful. Like you're not hurting yourself necessarily by this, unless you're getting obsessive. But like for many people, they're like, man, this is just another thing that I just like, I can't manage to think about on top of all of this. And that's like, okay, like start with the basic and can control what you can control and like start there. And I can't even tell you how many of my followers message me. And they're like, you know, at first I thought you were dismissing us, but then I just started to actually apply your advice with nutrition to my cycle. And a lot of my actual symptoms went away. And I was like, Cause it sometimes is just that simple. Like no one's lying to you or hiding secrets. Just, I don't think people realize how powerful food is <laughs> like, like mm-hmm. just really Enough powerful. Of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really, I mean, as a sports dietitian, I really appreciate that. That's like, um, even when these big papers, like the ones we were talking about come out, I'll be like, Oh, like maybe I'm gonna, maybe it's going to be something new and I'll read through it. And I'm like, so, okay. This is what I thought. Okay, cool. Like even what you said about the pyramid, I, I structure my course that way. Um, and when it came out with the pyramid, I was like, Oh, perfect. That's exactly what I'm doing. So, you know, I think it's just the basics still work. And then if you have the basics down, then we can start to go into some of those nuances. Um, yeah. So, sorry, go ahead. I'm just, I'm just agreeing with you. You're good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, I know we're, we're really, um, you know, into this topic in, in terms of like the hormonal birth control part of this, where mm-hmm. it's like, okay, you know, now we're not talking about necessarily someone with a regular, um, you know, natural menstrual cycle. Um, I mean, what are you, your two cents on like 
How does that impact our performance? Is it still kind of like basics, go up the pyramid, need to start with those things? Or is there anything else that we should consider? Yeah. So I always give the caveat for people that whenever I talk about birth control, no matter what I say, I'm on birth control, right? Because a baby would be worse for my performance than anything else. Pros and cons. (laughs) Like that. And and it's like, again, I think it's like 64% of sportswomen is the terminology use a form of birth control to either manage symptoms or prevent pregnancy during sport. Now I know not everyone agrees with using birth control for managing symptoms, but I'm just quoting the data of what, and I will say that when I was recruiting for my dissertation study, almost all of my high fit women were on a form of birth control. So like it matched with the data. I think I had like 70% of my participants were that were highly trained were on birth control. And cause I couldn't do a high, low birth control, non-birth control comparison, but it was just like blind recruitment of my general population, but it lined up with the data. Like in my limitations, I was like, well, 64% of highly trained sports women are on birth control and 70% of my participants were. So that's like cool. That's pretty really on cool. par with what the population we're taking from. So anyway, yeah. that's my disclaimer, because I think there's a lot of fear mongering about birth control in general. I'm not going to talk about the fear mongering from a health perspective, just because that is not my lane at this point in time. Um, but when it comes to birth control and performance, it's a little bit messier because there's so many different types of birth control. Um, so same thing, start with the big rocks. Like, I think a lot of people are like, well, if I don't have a cycle, like, how do I know when to change? And there's some general guidance, like loosely suggesting stuff with birth control. Um, but the biggest thing is there's so many different types and there's like first and second generation estrogen types and the amount of estrogen in the pills can affect your performance. And then there's progesterone based ones. And I will say personally, from what I've seen, the progesterone based ones are the ones that were kind of having more of a continuous negative response. Like when we look at like the studies on like muscle growth on hypertrophy, like women who have like 30 MUs a day or whatever, what's the unit? I think that's right. Yeah. I think it's, yeah, it's whatever it is a day have actually more muscle growth, but maybe not strength that matches it versus 20. Um, they, there's no difference, but then when you look at progesterone groups are separated out by like, you know, generations or type, the progesterone women aren't gaining as much muscle because progesterone like is a more catabolic thing by nature. So it's kind of putting yourself in like a continuous luteal phase, so to speak, or like the first trimester of pregnancy is marked by like, or pregnancy in general is just high progesterone all the time. But that's the only one of like the pills where I like, am like, Oh, maybe, but when it comes to endurance specifically, cause I know like I, you know, reference like the strength stuff. I just think that for some reason our, our field is very endurance based. So I think the sports scientists care about strength and hypertrophy sometimes more. Um, but you might have things like higher blood lactate or a harder time reaching in zone. Like when they do VO2 max tests with women who are on birth control versus not birth control, sometimes they don't see the plateau. So that higher anaerobic metabolism might be blunted. Um, and like higher blood lactate and things like that. But overall, like it's kind of similar where the performance is like really maybe not that much different. There might be more of an advantage of having your normal hormones, so to speak, um, because of some of these factors. Um, but then again, it probably is impacted by like birth control type where like estrogen is good. And so, so for some people, like you're having estrogen, that's kind of moderate across the entire month you know, it doesn't seem to be as negative as maybe having progesterone across the month versus like IUDs are either localized hormones that, you know, can spread systemically depending on what, like whatever you have for your vaginal insert or 
like they have no hormones whatsoever. They're just stopping contraception. So like, then there's the bar there's just so many different types of things. And I feel, I feel bad because like, anytime you post about something, it's easier to just talk about the cycle. Cause anytime you talk about the cycle, then people are like, well, what about this type of oral contraceptive? What about perimenopause? What about menopause? What about PCOS? What about endometriosis? And like, there's so many different hormonal variations that individuals can experience in their lifetime that it's hard to know, like exactly how these things impact stuff. Um, mm-hmm. but when it comes to like the birth control conversation, I think the biggest things are, you know, you do want to make sure you're eating enough because for individuals that are on birth control, if you're not getting a cycle every single month or you're not having a consistent, you, and also like you're stopping ovulation to begin with, and you're not having a regular menstrual cycle, you're having a withdrawal later. You're just not having a period at all, depending on what you're doing. Um, you might not be able to tell if you are like amenorrheic or anovulatory, which means not having ovulation because that's the, the point of your pill is to stop those things from happening. And so that's not like necessarily bad, right? But you wanna make sure that like you're still eating enough, making sure you're eating to your energy availability. Like you can get blood work. Um, there was a paper that came out recently that suggested that for like some of the like uh, micronutrient deficiencies you might see with birth control. It appears that if you supplement, I don't know if you saw that, it just like just mm-hmm. came out. Like if you supplement, they all kind of just go away. Yep. So <laughs> you could get blood work or work with a dietitian if you are concerned. But if you feel like if you're getting bone fractures, you're getting stress fractures, you're having low prevalence of these things on blood work, you're having poor performance, like you're having symptoms of like high stress on your body, like I'm not going to tell you to get off your birth control or not. That's not my place, but you should then maybe like there's signs of malnutrition or undernutrition, maybe is a better term than just your period. Like that is a great sign in ovulation for people who are experiencing that. But like, that is like, so you get working up the pyramid, like it doesn't, and like, even if birth control has these small effects on performance, again, those performance effects are not greater or more meaningful than the impacts of nutrition, proper programming, sleep, recovery. Like, again, like it's not that hormones don't have anything, but they're just not like coming in with like the triumphant director of our entire life. Like the exercise stress or the stress of these other things, like can override that quote unquote stress or influence and stress isn't necessarily a bad thing. Stress is just what your body's telling your body to do, like the influence of these things. Um, and so with the birth control conversation, again, um, if you're a lead elite and you're worried that it's affecting something, like work with someone specific to that, but like no good professional should be telling you to get off a medication. Um, especially like the conversation now is like, you know, in different places, people are worried about, like, they're worried about preventing pregnancy and that's absolutely fine. Or they don't know enough about their cycles to prevent things or how to like do these things, or, you know, that's just a personal choice. And so like trainers and coaches should respect that and work around it. Um, and again, for most people, I, I personally think that like, you know, where birth control might have some negative impacts on training and performance, they're still pretty inconsistent. Um, again, it might be high end anaerobic activities. Maybe you're accumulating a little bit more lactate, which obviously isn't as ideal, right. Um, but it doesn't tend to necessarily impact hypertrophy too much, unless you're on a progesterone based one. Um, but again, big rocks. Like what are the big things that are impacting performance? Because if you're not eating enough carbs, well, your anaerobic performance isn't good anyway. If you're training on the keto diet, well, your anaerobic performance is shot. Like you're not having high end um, metabolic activity. So you have to keep these things in the factor of that. And so um, that's the biggest thing though, is I think that it's harder for individuals who are on birth control to track the symptoms of a healthy hormone cycle. 
um, to know if they're kind of doing the right things or not. I think it's really important to, you know, just come up with what the priority is. Like if the priority is that we're taking the pill to not get pregnant, like, you know, then, then that's great. You know, it's a pretty good solution for that. Then we just need to come up with other ways, like you said, to monitor, you know, are we eating enough, you know, and, and are we taking care of our body and is it happy? And, you know, you're not going to have like a, a natural quote unquote menstrual cycle, you know, as kind of your North star to check on that, like someone would, if they're not on the pill, but it doesn't mean that, you know, we can't come up with other ways to check in. So I appreciate that because it's such a personal decision. Um, and I think that's like a very cliche thing to say, but it really is. And there's pros and cons to taking it and there's pros and cons to not taking it. So, um, I think it's just important to have that discussion. So I appreciate that. Yeah. I wish I had more to say in that. I did do birth control groups in my thing and there is a little bit of data out there on it, but overall it's like, "Mm, it might do this, but also like, mm -hmm, like (laughs) just depends. It's really hard to control the types. Right. So like, again, I will always say like, you feel like you're having a negative experience with your birth control. And honestly, if you want to change the type that you're on, because you care about performance or get on it or get off it, like we are not here. I'm not here to tell you that, but like, make sure you're having those conversations with your doctor and your priority and like, like advocating for your own health or goals or symptoms and all of that stuff at the end of the day. So like, I don't want anyone who's like on the progesterone based thing to be like, doc list told me to get it off because it's killing my gains. And I'm like, no, because some women, that's the only birth control that works for them. And if that's your priority, that's your priority. Like totally, totally. If like, that's going to be the best one for you because of like other, you know, genetic reasons or whatever it is, then pros and cons, pros and cons to everything. Um, Well, I want to ask you the end of the podcast question, um, to kind of wrap up this conversation, but first, where can people find you? Um, and all of like these amazing resources that you offer. I'm everywhere. Um, <laughs> I really am though. Um, I mean that like sarcastically, but not, um, <laughs> so I'm docless fitness on Instagram, which is where I primarily hang out, but my website is docless fitness and you can find like everything there organized. I have a whole, if you go to my blogs tab, female physiology, you'll find all of this stuff. Um, I just released a podcast episode on this recently, and I have a few more on this topic. So you can find my podcast, the messy middle podcast, but it's also available on YouTube now, which is docless fitness. Please subscribe to my YouTube. Um, I'm also on talk clock talk, TikTok a little bit, mostly cross-posting, but I've gotten into a little bit more. Um, so I truly am a little bit of everywhere, uh, so to speak. Um, but that's where you can find me like docless fitness across the board, except for my podcast, which is the messy middle podcast. Um, and that's, that's where I'm hanging out. That's all the places. So yeah, yeah. I have lots of other information out there on this. Yeah. You guys should go check her out. She's got, she's got great posts. It's very like, I just appreciate your perspective on all of this. Um, Well, I'm excited to ask you this question. So picture you are finishing like the best race of your life. Like it was just one of those days where it was like flow state. You felt great the whole time. What song or if anything would be playing at the finish line to embody how you're feeling in that moment? So my 50 miler, my first 50 miler was probably the best race I ever ran in my entire life. It was just, everything clicked. Um, It was just such a good day, such a good race. Everything was great. And they asked us what we wanted they wanted to play like we wanted it played for us as we were finishing. So it's called the it's the Georgia Jewel, which is like a 50 miler in uh like Dalton, Georgia. Um, and they have this like random, super steep gravel hill at the very end. Um oh they call it Mount Baker because the Bakers host the race. And it's just like stupid incline for like this random hill that's coming back up from like this farm field up back to the, the finish line at this convention center. But they put big speakers and give you beers. <laughs> and all I asked for them was to play Missy Elliott for me. 
And I don't know if they ever did it, but I will say though, I'm just going to, I'm just going to talk anyway. So during that race, um, when I was manifesting me finishing the 50 miler finish line, the song hallelujah by Oh wonder was my song that I pictured myself and it came on shuffle in my 49th mile. And it was like the most amazing moment of my life because it was just like, I know it was so emotional because like, I just, whenever I was picturing myself finishing the race, I didn't finish picture 50 miles. I pictured mile 49. Cause I just needed to get to mile 49. Cause if I get to mile 49, then I know that I did it, which is so silly. Cause you know that if you're like at the last aid station, but like in my head, when I was like manifesting, finishing the race, I pictured that. And it came on exactly at that point in time. And so like, it was a mix of like this emotional moment with like a very, like kind of slower song to like charging up a hill with a guy throwing a beer at me as Missy Elliott is blasting. Um, but then like my hundred K I'm finishing the finish line and I'm listening to Megan, the trainer, as I'm like coming downhill sideways. Cause my IT band has exploded as I'm finishing 63 miles. So you never know what you're going to get from me at the finish line, but I do partition my race playlist into different genres as I go across the day. So it's usually something like I, I really, that 50 miler, the last 10 miles, I'm pretty sure I ran to just Missy Elliott. So that's oh my, my God. response. I haven't gotten that response yet. That's fabulous. Listen, I'm telling, I don't know, like, I don't know how many listeners run ultras and it's been, I'm a little rusty, but like, if I'm not feeling good, like female rap is just that I'm getting after it out there. I'm the whitest, whitest girl you will ever meet running through the woods, which is blasting like female rap artists, but that's what, that's, 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 that's what, that's what does getting it. me to that finish line, right? <laughs> getting me to that finish line. I feel like an ultras too. Like you need hallelujah and you need Missy Elliott. You need both. <laughs> you do. You yeah. do. I mean, I listen to so many different, I, but like I'll segment my playlist into genre to fit the mood that I usually feel throughout races. So it's usually like slow indie alternative stuff to kind of pace yourself in the beginning, like run your own race. Like don't focus on everyone else going out, like pace yourself. And in the middle, it's very like electronic-y, beady, like kind of stuff because you're just zoned in. Like that middle section, you're just like, you're zoned in. And then at the end, you're in pain cave mode and you're just like, send it like gummy. That's when I whip out, like I, I eat all this proper sports nutrition stuff in the beginning. And then the end, it all goes out the window and I'm just ripping peach rings and gummy worms from my yes. pockets and blasting, like whatever can get me into that finish line. How much dopamine can I get, get in my body as I'm doing this? But then like after that charge, it's like, Oh wonder. And I'm crying as it's mile 49. And then I'm charging up a hill and a dude throwing me a beer. <laughs> that's not like, that's just like that with that's, but that's like the perfect way to finish those things. Right. So yeah, totally. Oh, I love yeah. that. The, um, I've, I've had that happen to me before where I'm like, oh, I have kind of like a song that like, I just picture playing at the finish line and it's like happened. It's like, come on truffle. And I'm like, oh my God, you're here. This is great. Now I can power I through. I think that's <laughs> truly one of my, that, and when, in my hundred K, when we were heading out for the last eight miles, that felt like it was an eternity. Um, I, the song for my hundred K was called run for your life by the siege. And that was like my song. And then the song puppets, um, by, did you watch that documentary, how to run hundred miles on yes. REI and the song puppets is the song that he plays for him and his friends. And it's like, Oh, how's it go? Something that you used to be great, something, blah, blah, blah. And that was the song that like got me through that training. And I remember like just randomly putting my hundred K playlist on shuffle to go out for that last eight miles. And that song came on as we headed out, like into the dark, me and my friend, Jason, um, <laughs> like just into the dark. And that came on and I was like, we're doing it. 
Like, that's it. This is the end. No one's coming to get us. Like, we're going to finish this thing. And so, yeah, it is funny how that happens and how you have those. So that's great advice for everyone else here. Find a song Mm -hmm. and make that your race song. And then like race day, that's it. Like you just have to find that and your lowest moments or your highest moments. And you just, that's all you need to do is keep moving forward. So, and this works no matter what phase of your menstrual cycle you are in. <laughs> I'm telling you when you, you got me talking about music, music is like, I pretty much just like, I'm a big music chill and I, all I do is run to listen to music, but yeah, you can, you don't have to plan your race period, uh, music playlist based off your menstrual cycle phase. You can listen to whatever you want during any phase of your cycle. It won't <laughs> increase your cortisol so much that you will uh, start to gain fat and become infertile or whatever the internet is saying. Someone's going to think that's real, but that's what the posts say. So anyway, okay. I'll stop ranting and raving about all of this stuff, but I hope you guys learned something from me on this lovely Friday afternoon. Oh my God. Thank you so much though, for, for all of that insight. I think it's, I just think it brings really good perspective to this conversation. Um, and yeah, have a great weekend. Thank you so much. I'm going to go play in some mountains. <laughs> Doc Liss, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciated your insight to this topic. And I hope it just kind of hopefully eased some of your minds around, oh no, uh, my race is going to be in my luteal phase. What do I do? Because if if you have the insight and have tracked your cycle and you know when you feel good during the time of the month and when you don't feel as good during the time of the month, you just it's good to have that knowledge because then you can equip yourself with maybe some nutrition or symptom management tactics to help yourself feel better. And, you know, you really can perform well at any time of the month. Um, at the time of recording this in August of 2022, I've reflected on how in the past year I've done, let's see, one, two, three, four. I've done five races. I don't race that often, guys, <laughs> but I've done five races. Two of them were marathons. Both of those were PRs at the time. One of them was a half marathon in training for the marathon. Um, one of that being the Boston Marathon. One was a trail Ragnar relay and one was a 10K. Um, performed pretty great at all of them. All of them, I had my period. Every single race I have raced in the past year, I have had my period. I am on a roll with this. So, um, you know, take it from me. You can PR any time of the month. Like the days that I PR'd, they were quote unquote on like my worst days of the month that I knew personally tended to be my worst days of the month. And you can still put things in place to make it happen. If you're looking for like just my personal experience on what I've done, you can listen to my Boston Marathon recap episode. I talk a lot about just how I approach this, things I thought about. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it is going to be individual to you. So if you do need help, maybe reach out to me and we can have a conversation about like what might be helpful for you or, you know, contact your doctor or your sports dietitian. That's what we're here for. Um, we're not here to tell you, oh, cancel your race because it's at a bad time of the month. <laughs> but we're here to basically help support your body so that it can feel you know, pretty good uh, most of the time so that you can train consistently. And the key takeaway from this episode is none of this matters if you're not eating enough. So start there if you think that that could apply to you. Until next time, guys. Happy running. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole 
Whole Foods Market. 